but welcome to today's program. This is the 102nd face-to-face uh, -face with yours truly uh, that I've put here up on my channel. And I'm still collecting uh, paragraphs of false teaching that I will show you how to be a smooth talker. And the only reason I'm going to do that um, is to help guard you against the many, 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 many smooth talkers and deceivers and people that use the flattery, flattering speech and subtleties of speech uh, to deceive uh, the simple and to lead people astray. Sometimes not the simple, sometimes the very well informed and well read uh, can be led astray. But one thing I wanted to share with you today, and I wanted to read a little section of this. I'm going to try to make this program a little bit shorter than usual, unless I really get wrapped up and really get going here or something, is I wanted to read a little section of a book I've been reading, and it's a, a book that was written a while ago. Uh, it's called Christ the Lord, The Reformation and Lordship Salvation, edited by Michael Horton. And I guess I started reading it again, and I found an electronic copy of it on Google Books uh, for free online. Uh, but I've had I've given out many 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 copies of this great book because it's a response from the scriptural and reformational perspective to the so-called lordship salvation controversy that erupted uh, back in oh goodness probably 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 as far back as the 80s maybe even the 70s and the 90s it was still going on and it really it really is still going on to this day as we have people making the same errors. Um, that, uh, unfortunately, John MacArthur made in his original <clears throat> editions of the Gospel According to Jesus. Now, um, according to uh, the book, Christ the Lord, that was edited by Michael Horton, John MacArthur was um, addressed about some of his uh, statements, and they're very problematic. In fact, I had forgotten how, how bad some of those comments that he made are. Confusing faith and obedience and faith um, with... Uh, uh, justification and sanctification, and, and just um, really, really blurring the line uh, that the Re Protestant Reformation really uh, did such a great job of keeping clear. And the reason they kept the line clear between justification and uh, faith in Christ and repentance is because the Bible keeps those things very clear from one another. Now, just uh, uh, just you're probably wondering why the, the picture's a little fuzzy. Well, I'm, I'm broadcasting from my laptop this is a little bit older laptop, but I love it. It's, it's nice and fast. I had a new hard drive put on it. But the camera's not like, uh, uh, you know, it's not like state-of-the-art or anything. But it doesn't need to be, because I think that the audio is good and the picture's good enough. Uh, but today I'm in Cincinnati uh, helping uh, with my father, because my mother needed to go to Alabama to see her mom, uh, who turned 100 yesterday. And uh, I, she, uh, my grandmother, uh, her mom, died when I was in seminary. Uh, my great-grandmother died when she was 106, so my, my mom's mom's mom died um, just a short time ago. That was 2007, and uh, while well, I was in seminary. But I'm in Cincinnati right now, and I'm going to be heading home shortly. Uh, but I wanted to go ahead. Don't want to don't want to miss uh, the weekly program. I know that there are people that, that enjoy this, so I wanted to do a program from here. There's a little section in Michael Horton's introductory article, and the introductory article is outstanding. I forgot how great this book is, Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation. And there's a little section in it called What is Saving Faith? And the thing is, the the errors that, that John MacArthur made, now, the, the Zane Hodges position and the, the quote-unquote non-lordship position to me is so obviously wrong, is so blatantly heretical, it's not biblical. It's not reformational. Um, the whole Zane Hodges, Bob Wilkin, um, 
uh, grace evangelical society. They don't understand grace. They don't understand the gospel. And it's not evangelical theology by any stretch of the imagination. What it really is, it is, it is the purest form of antinomianism that there is. The, the Zane Hodges stuff and, and the, the quotations that uh, Michael Horton uh, brings out in this introductory article from, um, for example, Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley's uh, theology, I, I'd forgotten how bad it was that the, the kingdom parables where there's the, some are thrown out, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, uh, Stanley thinks those are Christians who are saved. And they're in heaven. And the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth is just because they didn't, they didn't get the kinds of rewards that others got. I mean, it is so incredible uh, to read what Zane Hodges and uh, Charles Stanley were actually saying. And, and there's others uh, from that perspective as well. But it's so obviously wrong. And that really what's at the heart of, of their theological issue is they absolutely cannot stand the idea that God has unconditionally elected who he's going to save. And because they reject that, um, because they think becoming a Christian is entirely uh, based upon what man and his autonomous freedom can do. Um, man's autonomous freedom can do. Um, then certainly discipleship would be just as just as optional uh, as getting saved would be. They, they argue you can be saved and die an atheist and still go to heaven. Uh, someone is asking here in the channel, where did Stanley say that? I want to see it. Uh, sure, let me find the quotation here. This is from the Gospel According to Jesus. Uh, let's see. Um, 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 um. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. I, I was like reading this again. Um, I, it's been a long time since I have read this. But let me find the quotation for you there. Mason, are, are you having a hard time believing he actually said something like that? <laughs> but he sure did. Uh, let's see. Where is it? All right. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Um Let's see, Stanley, Charles Stanley here. All right. Um, where is it? Where is it? Yeah, Stanley. Here, here it is from Charles Stanley. Um, yeah, here we go. The final verse of this parable. Okay, this is Charles Stanley commenting on um, Charles Stanley commenting on Matthew twenty five thirty about outer darkness. What that refers to. Quote: The final verse of this parable is so severe that many commentators assume it is a description of hell. It is not. The point of this parable is that in God's future kingdom, those who were faithful in this life will be rewarded, and those who were not will lose any potential reward. Before we can understand the full impact of the parable, we must first determine what the outer darkness refers to in the context of the parable. It certainly does not mean hell in the parable. How could a master throw a slave into hell? But what actual place was Jesus referring to in the parable? He gave us only one hint. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To be in the outer darkness, I'm still quoting Charles Stanley, is to be in the kingdom of God. Okay, you, gotta, you hear this? Charles Stanley says, quote, To be in the outer darkness is to be in the kingdom of God, but outside the circle of men and women, whose faithfulness on this earth earned them a special rank or position of authority, end quote. Are you hearing this, Lily? Malachi? <laughs> my, uh, two of my kids are here with me. Okay, real quick, guys, come over here. I just want, want to introduce you. They're sitting in here. They get to participate in the live thing, not on TV. There's Lily. And there's Malachi. What's up, guys? Fist bump, fist bump, dad. All right, cool. Go sit down over there. So they're actually here with me in studio. In the studio, in my high-tech studio here, in my dad's uh, study. Um, in case you're wondering what, what uh, that thing is right there. That is an old 
dual cassette tape player. If anyone here is old enough to remember those, <laughs> anyone remember? I used to make, I used to dub or make make copies of audio cassettes on that thing when I was a kid. That's how old that thing is. Anyway, all right. So, did you hear what Stanley's saying there? It's pretty pretty incredible. Okay, put your right hand up your buffering. Uh oh. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, Stanley, Charles Stanley says, the kingdom of God will not be the same for all believers. Let me put it another way. Some believers will have rewards for their earthly faithfulness. Others will not. Some will reign with Christ. Others will not. Some will be rich in the kingdom of God. Others will be poor. Some will be given true riches. Others will not. Some will be given heavenly treasures of their own. Others will not. Some will rule and reign with Christ. Others will not. Okay, now he goes on. This truth may come as a shock. Maybe you have always thought that everyone would be equal in the kingdom of God. The clearest proof comes from Jesus' reply to Peter when he asked the master about what he and the other apostles would receive for their sacrifices. Okay, uh, then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus did not reprimand him for being selfish and self-centered, neither did he attempt to correct Peter's theology. Okay, now, listen to this quote here. This is Charles Stanley. Now imagine standing before God and seeing all you have lived for reduced to ashes. How do you think you would feel? How do you think you would respond? Picture yourself watching saint after saint rewarded for faithfulness and service to the king, and all the time knowing that you just had you had just as many opportunities but did nothing about them. We cannot conceive of the agony and frustration we would feel if we were to undergo such an ordeal. I mean, folks, do you hear what he is saying here? To be in outer darkness to be weeping and wailing and gnashing your teeth for eternity is simply an expression of frustration that other Christians that went to heaven got more rewards than you? I mean, this is the the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian theology taken to its logical conclusion. I mean, if you believe that man really does have the ability to save himself by an independent, autonomous act of his will, then certainly you're going to believe things like this. But we believe what the Word of God says, that those whom God predestined he, he also called. He predestined them and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Okay, now there is a judgment of works for rewards, but those that are consigned to weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth are people in hell. Listen to this. The realization that our unfaithfulness had cost us eternally would be devastating, and so it will be for many believers. Just as those who are found faithful will rejoice, so those who suffer loss will weep, As some are celebrated for their faithfulness, others will gnash their teeth in frustration over their short-sightedness and greed. We do not know how long this time of rejoicing and sorrow will last. (laughs) Those whose works are burned will not weep and gnash their teeth for eternity. At some point, we know God will comfort those who have suffered loss. I mean, what is the difference between Stanley's theology and purgatory here? Isn't that crazy? I mean, well, the weeping and gnashing of teeth doesn't continue forever. Eventually, God will comfort them. That sounds exactly like Rome's concept of purgatory, doesn't it? Don't you think, Lily? She's nodding. That's unbelievable to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen to this, though. Here's how he closes his quotation. Anyone who takes Jesus' kingdom teaching seriously knows that believers do not get away with sin. Every sinful deed will be examined. What can I say? What, What did Jesus do in this situation here? Isn't the whole point of his death that... Christ is held legally responsible for our sins so that we aren't when we die? I mean, think about the consequences of what he's saying here. Every sinful deed will be examined. He's talking about Christians. 
Goodness gracious. Okay, now he goes on, and Horton gives a number of other quotations here from Stanley. Um, but it's it's really bad. This is really bad theology. So I want to emphasize to you, um, let's see, Rob Gibbs says, weeping and gnashing of teeth is like the must superlative expression in that Jesus did not use adjectives, but rather verbs to convey this point. Right, right. Um, okay. Now, uh, hopefully y'all can still hear me. Um, yeah, he gives a great quotation from John Calvin. If I if I read all these other quotations, I'm not going to get to what I was trying to get to here. Um, let's see. I want to read the section of what saving faith is, because this is the thing I'm dealing with now. This is the thing that, like, Doug Wilson... Doug Wilson's errors on saving faith, his, his doctrine, his goofy doctrine of living faith that is obedience and things like that, is identical. I, I, I never made the connection between what MacArthur, John MacArthur said in the Gospel According to Jesus years ago. I don't know if these quotations are still there. From what they say in this latest edition of, the, of Christ the Lord, MacArthur has revised some of those things. Um, okay. The, the, okay. I don't know what, what book of Stanley's it's from. Uh, there's footnotes here. I don't have time to, to look at them. I'll, I'll try to post them in the show notes eventually. That, that'll help. Okay. All right, uh, Tyrell Guevara. Guevara, sure, just send me an email, bro. We can we can talk sometime. All right, what is saving faith? This is the key here, because the errors that are being made on this by John MacArthur and by you know Wilson, the Federal Vision, all, all these guys are fatal. They're absolutely fatal to the Christian faith. Now, I just published a book on on Amazon Direct Publishing, Kindle Direct Publishing, uh, called "Am I Right with God?" I have a whole chapter on what is saving faith, where I try to correct some of these errors. Uh, But listen to this. When MacArthur writes, real faith results in obedience, there's nothing with which we would take issue. Because that's true. I'm breaking from the quotation. Real faith does result in obedience. However, when he adds repeatedly such statements as the following, we cannot help but take issue with him. Now, these are quotations from John MacArthur. Disobedience is unbelief, he says. True faith is humble, submissive obedience. And my response to that is, no, it's not. No, it's not. It, it results in, it is accompanied by humble, submissive obedience, but that's not what faith is. That's not what faith in Jesus Christ is. MacArthur also says, quote, we have seen already that repentance is a critical element of genuine faith, end quote. No, it's not. Repentance is distinguished from faith. They go together, they always go together, but faith is not repentance. Repentance is not faith. They go together, but you have to keep them distinct from one another. MacArthur says, quote, In other words, faith encompasses obedience. Faith is not complete unless it is obedient, and says Dr. Horton, and we could go on. The fruit of genuine faith is grateful obedience. Okay, now, If people just got that, there would be no issues. We wouldn't have to do all this legwork. But it's always important to, to do this and to point out we are badly messing up what true faith in Jesus Christ means. When people talk about faith being a busy bee, you know, someone sent me an article by Doug Wilson, saving faith is a busy bee. And I thought, what a gross caricature of what scripture says. Saving faith is not a busy bee. Okay, Faith rests on the finished work of Christ. Christians are busy bees. Christians are busy doing good works. Not to save themselves, 
but in gratitude to God for having already saved them perfectly by the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. Now, is, it th- is that that complicated? So why is it that people that are authors of zillions of books and speak all over the world and have all that, why, why do people keep messing this up? It's really disconcerting to me. Okay, says Dr. Horton here. The fruit of genuine faith is grateful obedience. Okay, so simple. The fruit of genuine faith is grateful obedience. Nevertheless, in order to clear the garden of the antinomian weeds, the danger is that we may pull up some precious flowers along the way. Martin Luther coined the phrase, justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. The simple formula was calculated on the one hand to protect the doctrine of justification against the additions of human works as merit or even as unmeritorious conditions to the forensic declaration. Man, that is such an important sentence. If y'all, if y'all have tuned out for a second, please, 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 please listen. Please listen. <clears throat> the simple formula, justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That formula is calculated on one hand to protect the doctrine of justification against the additions of human works as merit, or even as unmeritorious conditions to the forensic declaration. That's what the Federal Vision is doing. They're unmeritorious conditions to the forensic declaration. That's the problem. It says Horton. And on the other hand, to guard against the antinomian menace. Okay, what is antinomianism? Antinomianism is the idea that, well, I walked an aisle, I prayed a magic prayer, I said I believed in Jesus, and now I just live out of wedlock with my girlfriend, and I deal drugs, and I never go to church. I have no interest in worship, no interest in fellowship with God's people, no interest in being part of a church or anything like that. That's antinomianism. Someone who thinks they have no obligation of any kind to keep the law, but they're saved, they're good, they're going to heaven. That's antinomianism. Okay, from the antinomian menace that both Luther and Calvin faced that denied the inseparable union of faith and repentance, justification and sanctification. Faith produces obedience. Okay, I'm quoting Dr. Horton. Listen, listen to him carefully. Faith produces obedience, but to suggest that faith is obedience which is what MacArthur does and what Doug Wilson does and what the, the heretics in modern time do, is to confuse justification with sanctification. Thus, when MacArthur writes, quote, repentance is a critical element of genuine faith, he is inconsistent with the Reformation position. Defending the evangelical doctrine of saving faith against the Roman Catholic position, John Calvin said this, for their inclusion of faith under repentance disagrees with what Paul says in Acts testifying both to Jews and Gentiles of repentance to God and of faith in Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. Okay, breaking from the Calvin quote. Calvin points out that Rome included repentance in their definition of, of saving faith. Okay, I'm not saying MacArthur's a heretic, Jonas. Okay, dude, I'm not saying MacArthur is a heretic. But he does agree with, with Rome in those statements. When he says repentance is a critical element of genuine faith, MacArthur is wrong about that. It's not. Okay, repentance and saving faith are not the same thing. And one is not an element of the other. They always go together. But to say that one is the other is to confuse them grossly. Says Calvin, quote, There he reckons repentance and faith as two different things. The word of God does, Acts 20, 21. What then? Can true repentance stand apart from faith? Not at all. But even though they cannot be separated, they ought to be distinguished. As faith is not without hope, yet faith and hope are different things. So repentance and faith, although they are held together by a permanent bond, require to be joined rather than confused. 
And Jonas, that's what John MacArthur's doing in those quotations when he says that repentance is an element of faith. No, it is not. Repentance accompanies faith, but that's not what faith is. Okay, says Dr. Horton. Not only did Calvin guard against confusing faith and repentance, he argued that the former faith produced the latter repentance. He says, quote, However, our immediate transition in the discussion will be from faith to repentance. For when this topic is rightly understood, whoa, yikes, it will, it, will appear, it will better appear how man is justified by faith alone and simple pardon. Nevertheless, actual holiness of life, so to speak, is not separated from free imputation of righteousness. Now, it ought to be a fact beyond controversy that repentance not only constantly follows faith, but is also born of faith. Notice Calvin is very, very, very clear, and he's being very, very biblical in what he's saying here. He's saying you can't separate faith from repentance. Someone who has true faith will be repentant. But to say that faith is repentance is to make a gross error. Okay, now listen to what Calvin says. There are some, however, who suppose that repentance precedes faith rather than flows from it or is produced by it as fruit from a tree. Such persons have never known the power of repentance and are moved to feel this way, to feel this way by an unduly slight argument, end quote. Okay, says Dr. Horton. Furthermore, the classical evangelical definition of saving faith encompasses three elements, knowledge, an intellectual grasp of the facts, assent, the conclusion that these facts are true, and trust, the conviction that these true facts are true in my case and for my salvation. John MacArthur argues that the elements of saving faith are knowledge, assent, and the determination of the will to obey truth, end quote. After all, quote, faith is not complete unless it is obedient, end quote, says John MacArthur. And he quotes Louis Burkhoff, whose systematic theology is, a, is the standard contemporary summary of Reformed theology, in his favor. Now here's the MacArthur quote, and you're going to see here, Macar John MacArthur grossly misrepresents Burkhoff here. Burkhoff does not say anything even remotely close to what Burkhoff actually says in the quote. I, I looked up the Burkhoff quote, listen. Burkhoff sees three elements to genuine faith. This is quoting MacArthur. An intellectual element, noticia, which is the understanding of truth. An emotional element, a census, that is the conviction and affirmation of truth. And a volitional element, fiducia, which is the determination of the will to obey truth. End quote. That's the end of the MacArthur quote. Now listen to Horton's response. Nevertheless, this is not actually what Burkhoff says. The section where Burkhoff lists the, these three classical Protestant elements states nothing at all about the determination of the will to obey truth. And just breaking from the quotation here, I looked up the quotation uh, in Burkhoff's Systematic Theology and found it, and uh, Horton is right. Uh, what MacArthur says, Burkhoff says here, he doesn't say. Burkhoff doesn't say anything close to that. Now listen to, to Horton. Burkhoff has much to say about fiducia, that's the trust element of trusting in Christ alone, relying on, re receiving and resting on Christ alone. As Burkhoff summarizes, uh, excuse me, but it is all along the lines of trust, which is how this third element has been understood by evangelicals since the Reformation. As Burkhoff summarizes, quote, here's what Burkhoff actually said, this third element consists in a personal trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, including a surrender of the soul as guilty and defiled to Christ. That's what trust is. 
It means that you are personally trusting in Christ to save you. That what he did is what's going to save you. That's what it is. Now, Doug Wilson has said in many places, trust, trust is obedience. And that's just not the case at all. Faith in Christ, trusting in Christ is not obedience. It's just, just completely wrong about that. Listen to what uh, Burke, or, uh, Horton goes on to say here. It also includes the reception of Christ as the source of pardon and spiritual life. There again, he's quoting uh, Burkhoff. While it is clear that Burkhoff would never sever the relationship between saving faith and the determination of the will to obey the truth, he certainly does not confuse the two either, as MacArthur implies of Burkhoff and certainly accomplishes himself. John MacArthur does confuse those two things. In fact, Burkhoff shares the Continental Reform view that assurance of salvation does not require earnest introspection, but that it is part of the very essence of faith itself. Burkhoff's warning against what he calls pietistic gnomism could be easily directed at the fundamentalism out of which MacArthur comes, although that is, happily, not where MacArthur seems entirely to stand these days. Okay, uh, says Burkhoff here, Pietistic gnomism asserted that assurance does not belong to the very being, but only to the well-being of faith, and that it can only be secured except by special revelation, only by continuous and conscientious introspection. All kinds of marks of the spiritual life derived not from scripture, but from the lives of approved Christians, became the standard of self-examination. The outcome proved, however, that this method was not calculated to produce assurance, but rather tended to lead to ever-increasing doubt confusion, and uncertainty. And I would just break from the quotation, well, of course it does. If the primary source of your assurance is going to be constant introspection and constant self-examination, uh, you're not going to be very assured. Okay, now Dr. Horton says, while I'm certainly not accusing MacArthur of pietistic gnomism, it is interesting to note Burkhoff's disdain for continuous and conscientious introspection, searching for marks of the spiritual life, often non-biblical taboos, as means of attaining assurance. It must be said that this is not an enterprise that interests those who are more oriented toward the Reformation. There is certainly an important place for introspection, taking spiritual inventory, for the purpose of sending us back to Christ and his cross, confessing our sins, praying for strength to change, and accepting his forgiveness. Nevertheless, inward-looking piety has more in common with the errors of modern evangelicalism than with the ethos of Reformational evangelicalism. So many of the supporters of the lordship salvation position do not come from the Reformation perspective, but from a legalistic background. It is essential that MacArthur's position be clearly distinguished from the pietistic uh, gnomism. Whoops. Ah! I lost my place. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. I'm trying to go through this without messing up here. From the pietistic gnomism which continues to grip large segments of the evangelical community. Now, listen very closely here. This is one of the key parts. So if, you, if I lost you, please snap back to attention. Faith, according to Reformation theology, is not conversion, obeying God's commands, repentance, or commitment to live a new life. You know what? And that's what people keep making the error of saying. Listen to Dr. Horton. Listen to, guy, to a guy that actually has a PhD in, in theology. Or I think it's historical theology. Faith, according to Reformation theology, is not conversion, obeying God's commands, repentance, or commitment to live a new life. It produces, inevitably, all of these effects, contra Zane Hodges, but it is not itself to be confused with its effects, contra MacArthur. 
This is an essential issue, of course, because what is at stake is the biblical and evangelical doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone. Now, he goes on here to give some good illustrations. This is great. Now, please listen to these. If, for instance, anyone would have said at, at any time throughout our Protestant history, I am justified before God by faith and works, any informed layperson would have been convinced that such a person was a Roman Catholic, or at least an extreme Arminian. After all, faith is not enough, according to Thomas Aquinas, because his definition of faith is knowledge of and assent to the teachings of the church, not a trusting reliance on the person and work of Christ himself. Therefore, to faith was added love, and this faith formed by love was to produce the obedience necessary for justification. I know that this is not what John MacArthur means, but his language certainly does cause some confusion in this important area. For instance, is there really any substantial difference between saying, now listen, this not only applies to MacArthur, this would apply to Doug Wilson, the Federal Vision guys too. Listen. Is there really any substantial difference between saying one is justified by faith and works and saying one is justified by faith alone, but faith includes works of obedience in its definition? And until one's faith is obedient, it is not justifying? Surely not. Now I have to say, I have been saying those exact words to a Doug Wilson defender recently. <laughs> I, I said that, that those exact words. So it was encouraging to see a, a world-class theologian saying the same thing. Is there really any difference between saying, I'm justified by faith and works, and saying, I believe in justification by faith alone, but faith is obedience and works? Are those really different? you think those are different from each other? They're not. They're the same thing. If obedience is a work, and who could deny that, and faith is humble, submissive obedience, then MacArthur is telling us that faith is works. He seems to be saying that we are justified not by faith and works, or by a faith that works, but indeed by a faith that is works. For, quote, faith is not complete unless it is obedient. Page 173. Okay, faith in Jesus Christ is not obedience. Faith is not faithfulness. Faith is not works. Faith is not law-keeping. Faith is not a busy bee. Faith receives and rests on Christ alone. And because the Christian who has been granted that saving faith and trusts only in the finished work of Christ to save them will be a busy bee, will be obedient, will bear those fruits, but that's not what faith is. That's not what faith is. Listen to what Dr. Horton says here, continuing. Rome was convinced that mere knowledge and assent could not justify, and the reformers concurred, and so do I. Of course, this would be the devil's faith, as James referred to it. Nevertheless, what the reformers insisted was missing in the Roman Catholic formula was the element of trust. In other words, faith did not need works in order to become justifying. Rather, knowledge and assent needed trust in order to become saving faith. You see, folks, this, this is the thing. In Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, My most earnest prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I testify of them. I bear witness of them. They have a great zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What does it mean to submit to the righteousness of God, dear ones? Anyone listening? It means that you are not relying on your obedience, works, faithfulness, or anything else that you do. You're relying on Christ alone to get you into heaven. 
That's what the element of trust is. Trust is not obedience. Trust is, I'm relying on Christ alone. When I think about, man, what's going to get me past that final judgment into heaven? Jesus' shed blood, his death has paid for my sins and satisfied divine justice against me. And I am clothed in his imputed righteousness. That is what meets the law's requirement. Well, what about works? Are you an antinomian? No. Do we then make void the law through faith? No. On the contrary, we establish the law. We uphold the law. We love the law of God. But our faith, our confidence for entering heaven is on Christ alone. Faith is not a busy bee. Faith rests on Jesus Christ. Christians are busy bees. Christians do good works. God ordained that we should walk in them. But those good works and the repentance that we have, the grief over our sin, the hatred of our sin, that is not what faith in Christ is. And as soon as you start like smudging the line between those two things, you're going to lose the gospel. That's what Galatians 5, 1-4 is talking about. Paul says, I, Paul, I solemnly testify, if you receive circumcision... What he said here on his eschatology. No. I am sure you are misunderstanding John MacArthur. No, I'm not. I'm not misunderstanding him at all. He says it over and over and over and over and over and over again. They give the quotation after quotation after quotation. And he hasn't, you know, removed all of them. Now, from what they say in, in the book here, he hasn't changed all that stuff. Oh, so you're, you're the Ted dude that was sending me nasty emails. <laughs> Just like you misunderstood when he said... When he said, here we lose on his eschatology. No, I didn't misunderstand that. Uh, John MacArthur does not understand what post-millennialism is. What he presents of it is a caricature. Uh, So, sorry, sir, you're just playing wrong about that. I haven't misunderstood anything that he's saying. Uh, MacArthur has said that over and over again, that uh, faith is obedience. Faith um, does all that. So, are you saying that MacArthur, Dr. Riddlebarger, and all of the Reformed tradition that has criticized him on this, they've all misunderstood what he's really saying? Well, Jonas, I would would ask you, I would ask you, sir, um, what is he saying then? What is he saying? I just gave you the quotations from him. I mean, he said, "I, I misunderstood what he means by, we lose down here. Okay, well, what does he mean then? What does he mean by that? I mean, it's one thing to say someone misunderstands something. I mean, you do need to try to prove it. I mean, you can't just make accusations. You need to try to prove them uh, with facts. You know, facts are, are important if you're going to make accusations like that. Okay, uh, let me finish up the quotation here. It's good to know who that, that screen name is. I know exactly who he is now. He's been sending me nasty emails. Um, one of the many that send me fun emails. It's really interesting. Um... The emails I get, they're either really encouraging or they're just like acid in the face. So, okay. Um, 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 um. Okay, if obedience is a work, and who could deny this? And as John MacArthur said, faith is humble, submissive obedience. Okay, Jonas, how is that a misunderstanding of what he's saying? That's a direct quotation from him. Faith is humble, submissive obedience. Then MacArthur is telling us that faith is works. He seems to be saying that we are justified not by faith and works, or by a faith that works, that's the Protestant view, but indeed by a faith that is works. For, quote, faith is not complete unless it is obedient. End quote. That's from page 173 of the Gospel According to Jesus. Rome was convinced that mere knowledge and assent could not justify. Okay, I just read that a little bit ago. Nevertheless, what the Reformers insisted was missing in the Roman Catholic formula, the element of trust. We trust in Christ alone. 
We trust only in Jesus. Now listen to this next section by Dr. Horton here. MacArthur, it seems, is so disturbed by the antinomianism of his opponents that in order to make what he calls easy believism more untenable, he insists that the believer is justified by knowledge, assent, and obedience, or at least, quote, the determination of the will to obey truth, end quote. Rather than by knowledge, assent, and trust. Granted, the formulation is different from official Roman Catholic teaching, but it merely moves the element of works into the definition of faith itself. And I would just break it from Dr. Horton here. This is exactly what the Federal Vision guys do, too. That's what they did, too. This leaves that the impression that if a believer is repeating the same sin, he or she must not be justified yet, since repentance is a critical element of genuine faith, and faith is not complete unless it is obedient, as John MacArthur says. Further, MacArthur rarely refers to justification, but primarily to salvation. In fact, in the index to the gospel according to Jesus, the entry sanctification includes a number of references, while for justification we read, see salvation. While MacArthur is not responsible for creating the index, surely this is an imbalance in any presentation that claims to represent the gospel according to Jesus. Thus, we are to conclude that MacArthur intends justification by his use of the word salvation in the following quote. He's asking this question. It sounds like it. Listen to this quote. Quote, Those who think of salvation as merely a legal transaction, a reckoning apart from practical righteousness, will have a difficult time with this warning of Jesus in Matthew seven, twenty-one to 23. It puts salvation in very practical terms. It reiterates the key statement of the Sermon on the Mount. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. This is still quoting MacArthur. Most, or, um, excuse me, this is quoting Dr. Horton now. Most often, justification is what contemporary evangelicals mean by salvation, but if this is MacArthur's meaning, he is in serious conflict with the biblical teaching on justification at this point. If this is not his interpretation and salvation refers to something other than the event in which one is set right with God, these distinctions should be clarified for the reader. First, we must insist that justification is merely a legal transaction a reckoning apart from practical righteousness. We dare not defend against the separation of justification from practical righteousness by denying the distinction between them. And that is a masterfully written sentence. Listen, we dare not defend against the separation of justification from practical holiness by denying the distinction between them. See, what the what Zane Hodges and them are, deny is that practical holiness follows justification. We don't deny that. But we're saying you have to keep them distinct from one another. If you meld them together, you destroy the gospel. Our salvation is accomplished entirely by the work of Christ, not by a subjective transformation in us. But the subjective transformation in us always happens, though. But it's not part of what saves us or justifies us or gets us into heaven or anything like that. Okay, it goes on here. Second, the real purpose of the text in Matthew 5.20 is to drive the hearers to recognize that the external righteousness imposed by the Pharisees was hypocritical. What we require is a righteousness that not only covers obvious scandalous sins, but that covers the internal corruption of our hearts and attitudes. And this righteousness, we learn elsewhere in the Gospels and Epistles, is outside of us, imputed to us legally, apart from our own practical righteousness. If MacArthur by salvation, he refers to sanctification, then the issue of practical righteousness is quite appropriate. But failing to make key distinctions along the way, the author often as he does here, leaves the reader with the impression that justification itself includes both a legal and a practical aspect. This is quite foreign to the evangelical position. I'm just stopping from the quotation. That's foreign to scripture. 
justification is only a legal transaction. It is a change in our status, not a change in us subjectively. MacArthur appeared to make this confusion more obviously in a message on Romans 4, 9 through 12. And I, I want to say, this is going to be the last thing I read to you, uh, just so Jonas uh, under, uh, hears me here, hopefully he's still listening. <clears throat> um, they point out MacArthur evidently did correct this, and that this has been removed from their website, which is great. That shows that MacArthur is humble, uh, and he's willing to he's willing to accept correction on, on something that's this monumental. And, and I would say... Um, in my own life and ministry, um, there have been uh, two different times uh, that people have corrected an error uh, that I made in a sermon, and I've had to correct it uh, from the pulpit, and I've had to point out I said something that was wrong um, in front of the church. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing when that happens, but if someone does show you that you said something unbiblical, you do need to, to correct it. Now listen to this MacArthur quotation. Quote, this is a quotation from MacArthur. And we've been learning that justification then, or God imputing to us his righteousness, God putting his righteousness to our account, must be seen in two ways. First of all, it is a forensic declaration. That is, it is a statement of God relative to judicial reality. I heard recently that a preacher said, when we are saved, it is only a legal pronouncement. There's no change at all. It's simply that God declares us righteous, contrary to the real fact, but based on the death of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says, that is not true. There is a declaration, there is a legal statement, but there is a second aspect, and theologians would call this the ontology of justification, or the reality of it. And it is this, that God not only declares us to be righteous based on the satisfying work of Christ, but in Christ he makes us righteous. We are made righteous. And so you must see then, in justification by faith, both of these elements. That which is declared about us, that we are now on right, we are from now on right with God, can only be declared because, in fact, it is true that we have been recreated in his image, end quote. That is a really bad quotation. Okay, I'm sorry, there are not two aspects to justification. Um, one forensic and legal, and the other based on a subjective change in us. That, that's the Roman Catholic position, and that's just plain wrong. Now listen to what Dr. Horton, Horton points out. MacArthur then illustrates his point with the story of the prodigal son. Justification has, ever since the Reformation, drawn on the illustration of a robe of righteousness, because in this legal declaration, God covers our nakedness and shame with the verdict of Christ's righteousness. But MacArthur here sees this covering with the robe of righteousness in a different sense. Now, this is a quotation from MacArthur. Listen. But robing him in the robe to prepare him to sit at the Father's table is equivalent to that ontological or that reality of a changed life. And so there must be both. And it is, it is as if the son cannot receive all the blessedness of the father's table until he is robed in the right robe. And so we are reminded by this marvelous parable that there must be a stated fact about our being made righteous with God, but there also must be a reality behind that because God doesn't say things about us that aren't in fact true. Man, he's, he's, coming, he's coming close to charging the Reformation, the biblical doctrine, the way Rome does. It's a legal fiction. God doesn't say things about us that aren't true. He continues here. Uh, or, or that's, that's actually the end of the quotation. Now listen to Dr. Horton here. The importance of this departure from historic evangelical definitions cannot be overestimated. First, these statements embrace unintentionally a classic Roman Catholic understanding of justification. According to the Counter-Reformation Council of Trent, quote, justification is not only a remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man 
through the voluntary reception of the grace and gifts whereby an unjust man becomes just, end quote. After condemning the notion that one can be justified before God by his own works, canon one of the Council of Trent there, and that grace does nothing more than assist free will to merit eternal life, canon two, Trent nevertheless insists that justification involves a double aspect, a declaration and an actual inner renewal. Now, I, and I would ask, how, is that any different from what John MacArthur just said? Not really. Listen to Dr. Horton. The reformers objected to this teaching more strongly than to any other. In fact, one can safely say that this was the Reformation debate. And I, just breaking from the quotation, he's right. It was the Reformation debate. The, the issue of the Protestant Reformation was not, does God require righteousness for us to get into heaven? The issue is, where does it come from? And how can a person go to heaven? And the reformers answered, using the biblical text, scores of biblical texts, that justification before God is by faith alone because the only righteousness that has the merit necessary to meet the requirements of God's holiness is that righteousness that was achieved and performed by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. And justification has only one aspect. It is a change in our legal status before God. And that's all it is. Does God change us? Yes. Does God sanctify us? Yes. Does God grant repentance? Yes. Does any of that play any role in our salvation or in getting us into heaven? No, it does not. <clears throat> now listen. <clears throat> the reformers objected to this teaching more strongly than to any other. In fact, one can safely say that this was the Reformation debate. Again and again, one finds the reformers attacking the confusion of justification and sanctification. Not only does MacArthur here seem, seem here to repeat the Roman Catholic confusion of justification and sanctification, he actually makes the forensic declaration depend on a real moral change in the person's behavior. First, the robe is the reality of a changed life, not the declaration of a changed status as the reformers would have understood it. Second, quote, the son cannot receive all the blessedness of the father's table until he is robed in the right robe. And so there must be more than a declaration involved, end quote. In other words, God cannot declare one righteous before there is moral change. The legal declaration depends on moral transformation in MacArthur's statements here, just as surely in the Council of Trent's. To his credit, however, MacArthur seems to flatly contradict these very comments elsewhere, namely in the Gospel According to Jesus on page 187. And I'm glad that, that Horton pointed that out. I, I, I've heard John MacArthur preach on the gospel, and he gets it right. He nails it. Again and again and again. I've listened to Grace to You for years and years and years. But there's a thing called a pendulum. And very often, errors cause us to overreact so hard that we, we end up falling off the other side of the horse, in a sense. We're so concerned about easy believism and antinomianism that... We, we smudge the line between faith and repentance and almost include them together. That's not the answer. We have to be balanced and biblical. Yes, respond to the errors, but don't overreact to them. Don't be so provocative in the way you state things that you end up creating new errors. And that's really what these statements do. Now listen to this. This is good. I'll, I'll finish with this paragraph. These concerns have been brought to MacArthur's attention. And although there has not been yet any public retraction, these comments have been removed from the future copies of the tapes and editions of the booklet by MacArthur's staff. I have also been informed that MacArthur has corrected his position on this issue. After carefully assessing these comments, it does bring at least this writer to the conclusion that the parties involved in this controversy 
would do well to go back to the sources, particularly those of the Reformation debate, in order to clarify their language. One ought to give MacArthur the benefit of the doubt, and I, and I would do that. I give him the benefit of the doubt. That he does, in fact, hold an orthodox evangelical doctrine of justification. But it is surely not the view expressed in these remarks. Remarks read, heard, approved by Christians around the world who think this is lordship salvation. It is time for those who claim the Reformation heritage, on both sides of the debate, to gain greater clarity on these utterly basic definitions before they engage in sensitive theological debates. The laity are confused enough by our debates as it is. End quote. Okay, now, uh, we'll, we'll stop there. During the Evangelicals and Catholics Together controversy, John MacArthur was a clarion voice of truth. And if you listen to the, the six programs that were done with R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and D. James Kennedy on the John Engerberg program, I think those are accessible through Grace to You's website. MacArthur's wonderful, and his illustrations are wonderful, and he understands it. He gets what faith in Christ is so clearly. And yet you read these comments and you think, you know, none of us are infallible. None of us are infallible. And what he says about faith, being obedience, is just plain wrong. It's just plain wrong. It, it produces obedience. It leads to a life of good works. But to say that it is obedience and it is works doesn't make any sense at all. So saving faith, it's a, it's a battleground. It's a very, very important truth and something that has to be clarified when it's denied or when it's confused like this. And that's the only reason I'm doing this. Anyway, uh, love y'all. Thanks for watching or for listening, and uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next time.